You are listening to Sing Amen, ministering through music. I am Jennifer Kerr-Budziak, and welcome to our podcast. For our second podcast episode, we have an interview with Diana Kodner-Gurkcha, whose Handbook for Cantors, third edition, is literally hot off the press as I'm recording this. Many of us are familiar with the first two editions, which were used by cantor training programs across the country, as well as by a lot of individual cantors. This book, it just covers all the bases. It has vocal technique, liturgical formation, gesture, psalmody, uh, all kinds of stuff. And this third edition has an expanded section for priests and deacons to help them get more comfortable with chanting their sung parts of the liturgy. So in April, I got to have a conversation with Diana, who is currently the music teacher at St. Francis Xavier Ward School in Chicago. And in addition to the larger music program there, she's also working on training some of her older students into the cantor ministry. So our conversation, which started out being about her book, quickly went pretty far afield into areas of educational theory and the changing male voice, uh, self-esteem for singers in a world and a culture that really tends to discourage individuals from stepping out and making music. Uh, we talked about the fine art of transparency and breaking the fourth wall, how different cantering is from the kind of singing that most singers are trained to do, and, you know, of course, stories and anecdotes from our own experiences. Diana is a good friend and a colleague, and she's also a fabulous flutist, by the way, and I love any chance I have to sit down and chat with her. Diana, welcome. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I know when I came to Chicago in, I guess, the early 90s, uh, and I started teaching some of the cantor schools for the archdiocese, your handbook for cantors was, it was the textbook we used. And it, um, I remember just being thrilled with this book that seemed to have all in one place, pretty much anything you needed if you were looking for information as well as, you know, exercise and tips and vocal things and music theory things and how to approach different kinds of music, it was all in this book. So thank you. So just huge thanks for that. <laughs> um, and so when uh, you approached us about maybe we can do a third edition, I was completely delighted. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, what what brought you to you know, choose this time to revise the book and maybe some of what's new about it. Well, I think some of it was prompted when you reached out to me about uh, the new book that you put together with articles from GIA Quarterly. Yes, The Cantor's Art. Absolutely. And we started talking about all of these years and what has changed and what is the same. And I was thinking about the fact that I haven't really seen the fruition that I had hoped for when I wrote the book. Um, Of course, there's also been many ongoing changes to the liturgy, and there will continue to be, and so the book was out of date with regard to that. But uh, you got me thinking about where we need to go, where we still need to go, and how we can get there. and. What I still see is a compartmentalization and a sort of a distance between music programs and even functions within liturgical music programs and the clergy and staff of a parish. And so I started thinking too about why would this be when there's so much in common between priests, deacons, and cantors. All are ministers of the word, all lead prayer, Uh, all elicit or attempt to elicit 
heartfelt responses from the assembly, uh, all have singing roles. Given that that's the case, couldn't we come together to do some of our ongoing formation? And if that were to happen, we could support one another, we could gently encourage and challenge one another to grow, and I'm certain there would be individual growth, but I think moreover, parishes and communities would cultivate a vision for their community. There would be something deeper, uh, there, you know, it would be cathartic, it would be a catalyst for change in a positive direction. Ultimately with the hope of singing becoming more natural and normative and including the singing of the assembly, which is still not where we would like to see it, partly because we allow ministers of music to substitute for the singing of the assembly. So how do we get beyond that? And how do we get buy-in from everyone? If everyone doesn't understand what the goal is or what the impediments are, if they're not on the same page, I don't think we can get there. So that's what I got excited about and thinking, okay, we need to talk about all of these roles, certainly the role of the cantor, but these other musical roles in the hopes of bringing people together to share their formation and to share their reflection of the ministries that they do. Yeah, so, so that's why in this third edition, there's a, a whole expanded section that you know, we have, you address the songs of the cantor, but you also address the singing of the priest, you address the singing of the deacon, the different parts of the liturgy that belong to each of them, and sort of give approaches for how to, you know, how to decipher some of the chanting in the missal, how to, how to chant. Absolutely, yeah. because I think we live in an age where, first of all, people have a lot of opinions and give too much importance to their own opinions at times. So, well, I don't believe in singing that, or I don't, I don't believe that I need to be a singer. Well, have you tried? Are you being honest with yourself about your reasons for not doing something as a priest, as a presider, as a deacon? Um, I really believe, as a music teacher in an elementary setting, that everyone can sing. Everyone should sing. I think we're like the birds. Nobody's telling certain birds, you get to sing, you guys go sit over there and do something else, peck. Not the birds. Right. Uh, I think everybody is meant to sing as a human activity and as a human expression. We have speech, we have song. I think it's something we're meant to do. And I think there are a lot of reasons people don't sing, whether they're in the assembly, whether they're a presider. I think it goes to, uh, people in their lives who have told them you're not good enough, negative messages, fear of embarrassment. I think it's our uh, recording industry where everything we hear has been so edited and is so perfect. People don't even have any idea of what live music making is like. Really, what live music making is. It is flawed. Human beings are flawed. It can be at a very high level and still be flawed. And we create these very artificial recordings, and then people listen to that and believe that's what they're supposed to sound like. Or it's all a contest. We have all of these shows now. The Voice, uh, American Idol, and it's all about who's the best. And, oh, I think that's such a terrible thing in art, in any art. 
Who's the best? And I'm so glad we don't do that with regard to prayer. Who's the best? (laughs) It's not a contest. It's not a contest. We're all meant to live out our humanity, our spirituality. Uh, I think singing is a part of that. Now, granted, could there be physical impediments to singing? It can happen, but it's generally not the problem. A lot of people who've come to me and said, I've been told I'm tone deaf or I'm tone deaf were not tone deaf. They simply hadn't learned. It's like learning to hit a ball with a bat. I had a magnificent teacher of conducting when I was in my teens, Henry Charles Smith, and he he had been principal trombonist of the Philadelphia Orchestra under Ormandy, and he conducted the Minnesota Orchestra as assistant conductor or associate conductor, I'm not sure which, for years. When he was 12 years old, he was told by his music teachers that he was tone deaf because his voice was changing, it was big and unwieldy, he couldn't make it do what what his ear told him it should do. And it wasn't about being tone deaf, it was about learning the pedagogy to navigate that voice. I always tell my boys, you know, I, I teach middle school and I tell the boys, you know, it's like you just went from driving an economy car to a Mack truck. And I said, it's going to take you a while to know how to drive this Mack truck. And the only way to do it is by trying. But if we are so inhibited, we, we just cut ourselves off there, then there's no hope. Um, I also think it need not be perfect. It need not be at the highest level. It's a human expression, and the effort is appreciated by other humans. So when a cantor or a priest or a deacon sings to the best of their ability and has prepared and has worked and is ongoing in their development, the assembly appreciates that. And the assembly also is then encouraged to try to do the same. If they can get up there and, and sing in front of people, I should be able to sing here in the pew. That's all part of the philosophy. And it goes back to, it's funny, I was not uh, born and raised a Catholic. Um, and I remember my first Catholic Mass when I was at Northwestern, I was probably 18 or 19. We were singing hymns and songs, and there was a cantor at the mic with a beautiful voice who sang in such a way that I couldn't hear my own voice or anyone around me. And I thought, what is this? I think that was the moment. <laughs> that I decided I was going to write this book even before I had become a Catholic because I said, there's something terribly wrong here. I don't know what to do. Am I to listen? Am I to sing? What is the goal? You've told us, you've invited us to sing. We have music in front of us. But there's no chance of, of hearing ourselves or one another. And there's also this very delightful voice to listen to. So I should let that, that person sings much better than I do. Why should I sing when I could be listening to that? So that, that was one seed. And then uh, I had worked in churches, but uh, I began working in a, a community, in a community that was very welcoming, very open, very inclusive, and never pressured me about uh, changing my faith. And in time, it just, it hit me like, Paul getting knocked off his horse. I was really lucky to have that kind of an experience. It was a huge change. And then I couldn't get enough of learning about scripture and sacraments and theology. So all of this started to come together for me. And at that same time, I was learning about vocal pedagogy myself because I wanted to be a better choir director. So, so it all just, it, it was serendipity, you know, everything coming together for me.
Um, do you can you going back to that um, you know that first mass at Northwestern you know in the canter that you felt like you couldn't that you couldn't sing with I mean it, it sounds like you know she was, was I assume singing the words right singing the music right had a lovely voice um, do you remember did she gesture did she sort of yes. do the, do all the stuff right what was it about what she was doing that made it hard to sing with her why why was it she was consistently on that mic and in and sang in such a way and this is not always easy to explain but sang in such a way that said listen to me mm -hmm. uh, which is what singers are trained to do of course uh, but she also she lacked a transparency that invited me in that said isn't this fun let's do this together please uh, be a part of this with me isn't this wonderful isn't it wonderful when we sing together? I really want to hear you too. Sort of like that fourth wall that yes. we all put there when we perform, exactly. that we perform, you know, the audience is on one side and we're on the other, and that she hadn't, she didn't have that skill of not just breaking it, just take it out. There's yeah, no wall. Exactly. We're singing together. Exactly. Yeah. So it was very pretty, and I believe she gestured. Now, I had, I subsequently saw a lot of interesting kinds of gestures. I saw people who put their hands up like Moses in the scripture and had them up the entire time as if fearful that when they put their hands down, they would start to lose the battle. <laughs> I saw that. I saw uh, people conducting with kind of Kiranomic style gestures that were used uh, for the Salem method of Gregorian chant, which also didn't seem to make a lot of sense for whatever it was we were singing. I saw traditional conducting gestures being, I saw a lot of different things. I didn't get the feeling that a lot of thought had been given to, you know, I, I do love Stephen Covey's Seven Habits and beginning with the end in mind. What is the goal and what are ways to get there and what are impediments to getting there? So that kind of became a fascination for me with liturgy. And sometimes the simplest liturgies I experienced where there were, were no instruments, there might not even be a cantor or a music minister. It might be a singing presider. Robert Oldershaw, Father Oldershaw was great with that. Ken Velo, uh, Monsignor Ken Velo was great with that, with singing spontaneously and eliciting the song response of the assembly in the simplest setting, in the most natural way. I've done a lot of liturgies with Ken Velo also. And yet I've noticed that he, you know, he'll he'll speak and then he'll sort of ease into chanting and you know Kyrie eleison, and there's nothing else you can do as an assembly member but respond back there's nothing in you that would ever doubt that that's what you do it's just it's very natural and it's it becomes a dialogue and i mean as you say it's it's very hard to explain i love that though because what you just said because isn't liturgy the translation the thing done i mean mm -hmm. this is what we do we have a job to do i, I once uh, was a cantor at one of these late afternoon masses where everyone was very sleepy and there were even a lot of sisters in the back nobody was singing so we got to the lamb of god and i just went on you stay and just held my hands aloft and there was a gap and then they jumped in they woke up oh we have a job this is us here. you're not going to do it for us exactly. yeah and sometimes yeah. that's really what's needed a backing off in teaching they call it the gradual release of responsibility so with children, when you're teaching them, you're scaffolding things for them, you're helping them, you're empowering them, but you also have to pull back. Your, your goal is to put yourself out of a job. And I think in some ways, I mean, cantors would never be out of a job because there are things that we do that are not the role of the assembly. But with regard to the singing of the assembly, 
Your goal is to put yourself out of a job. This reminded me of a, a workshop I went to, oh God, it was with Marty Hagen, the first such workshop of any kind I had ever been to. And I, you know, I was just like young and on fire and oh, I want to learn more. And he said something, you know, kind of similar to, uh, you know, what you were saying about, you know, in that on you stay moment, he said, you know, if I'm going to get up and canter and lead the singing as the canter, there has to be the possibility of failure because I could just take responsibility for all of it and sing it all. And it would be lovely. But if I can't, you know, put the song out there for the people to to bring back, this is, of course, paraphrasing decades later, if there's no possibility of it not working, then there is no real dialogue and there's no real need of having everybody participate together. Yeah, it's like a person who fills in all the empty spaces in a conversation because they're uncomfortable. Yeah. It also makes me think of the commentator that was instituted after the Second Vatican Council where a commentator would say all the spoken parts. Well, thank goodness that's still not going on, but that really is the parallel. You know, at some point, the gradual release of responsibility, at some point, the assembly takes over. They do what it belongs to them. And it's fascinating to me when I talk with children that they don't understand their role as singers and their role as assembly and that there's even anything for them to do except to go there and watch and listen. So they love finding out that, oh, there, there really is something, there's something for us to do here. Oh, there's something, there's a role. I even, with, the, with some of the younger ones, you know, I, I call them, you are song leaders. You're going to be song leaders w within the assembly because sometimes the teacher's voices are going to be too tired or people are going to feel too sad about something. And so you're going to be the one who goes there and says, I will do this and I will help you. You'll be amazed that if you sing, you sing with feeling and with gusto, loud and proud, people are going to join with you. They may look at you first. Don't be surprised. They may turn around and look at you. It's not judgmental. It's not a bad thing. Their second response will be to join with you. And that, that is such an important thing for, I mean, and I love that you do that with the children you work with, because when a lot of, I think a lot of current adults as children never got that. Yeah. And I think trying to help the children learn that is the best way to then continue to form adults in it. I mean, again, I'm just hearing what you say, it just resonates so much with my memory. I, I also did not grow up Catholic, but I would go to a Catholic church with my grandmother and she every, and I was young and they weren't really talking to me and I didn't feel all that connected. And then the music would start and she would pick up a hymnal and she would open it and she would hold it out to me and she would trace her finger along the words and she would sing. And, you know, so following along in the hymnal and then I would learn and I saw how that worked. And then a, by a couple years later, I would visit grandma and I could pick up the hymnal myself and she would point up to the hymn board and I'd say, oh, 347. And I could find 347. And even just being an assembly member singing was one of the first times that I realized, oh, I have a job to do here. And that has stuck with me. Um, I even told that story to when I was working with the first communicants from Old St. Pat's. Um, you know, I said that when, you know, when you're in church, that the singing and the responses, this isn't, you know, sometimes it might feel like it's all adults talking around you or talking at you, but you have a voice too, and this is for you. And, and, you know, what kids can get a little excited and hearing that's like, oh, really? Me? Exactly. And that's all part of Christian initiation. It was for you. It is for these children. All of that engaging minds and voices together, as well as their spirit. 
I think makes all the difference in giving something of value. I was wondering if we could go back to revisit that whole idea of people not thinking they can sing yes. and just people being, you know, it's one thing to talk about, and I totally agree with you that singing is this normal human activity. Everybody should sing. And as you say, though, at the same time, you know, there's the popular culture. And I mean, even on the contest shows, it's not even a question of who's the best this week. It's now become who's the worst this week. I know, I know. Who's the one who gets kicked yes, off. Yes. And it's just the it's whole. It's rather awful. Yeah. It's yeah. So a lot of this is countercultural, but so is our faith. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Uh, Good point. But I really have embraced affirmations with both children and adults. And you talk about that in the book, too. Yes. I, this time, it's something new. I think it's so important. And you can write your own affirmations based on your own doubts, fears, whatever, baggage. But I think it's so important. And like many things we do, you need to say those messages to yourself repeatedly over and over, over a period of time. It's not something that you can change in yourself when you've carried messages, negative messages, for years. Or when you're bombarded with the quantity of negative images, messages, whatever, that make it so hard to, to just simply enjoy singing. And singing has this added, I think, aspect to it where not only is it, you know, are, are we sort of squelched by being frightened to do it. But in order to produce solid vocal sound, there needs to be a commitment to the sound. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing, I mean, any of us who have ever sung for, uh, shall we say, oppressive choir directors, you know, you, you know what it feels like when there's the, you know, the, this tension and anxiety, you know, or sometimes overt unkindness coming from the podium it has a physical effect on your voice. It absolutely is. And those inner messages will do the same thing. You know, and you, if, you, if you feel like, oh, I don't know if I can make this sound and try to make it and are afraid to make it, very likely it'll have trouble coming exactly out. exactly right. Yeah. And then there have been so many studies over the years about positive visualization. So that's another aspect where you imagine yourself being successful. But also, I mean, what do musicians do? You imagine in your mind, the sound that you want to make before you can create it. If you can't imagine it, you can't create it, right? Mm -hmm. So you and I talked about this at another time, about first learning to sing with a straight tone because we were big fans of King's College Cambridge. We both were. And, you know, think about all through the parts of history where women didn't sing, boys sang. So you want, needed to sound like a boy. And if that's all you know, it's going to be very hard to sing with any other kind of voice. So it's getting different ideas. It's not visualization, it's audiation. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mr. Gordon. Thank you, Mr. Gordon. Uh, it's audiation. And the better you can do with audiation, the, the more successful you're going to be. So we, we talk about that. I mean, that's a big part of even matching pitch. So mm -hmm. with people who have struggled to match pitch, I'll often give them a pitch and make them count to three or four or five, and then sing the pitch to give them really a lot of time to recreate the pitch in their mind before trying to make it and with great success. So mm -hmm. it's going to take longer initially for some people, and then eventually it becomes automatic. But again, it's, it's coordination of the vocal mechanism with the ear. Mm -hmm. it's, it does not mean that the ear isn't there. 
I had a really interesting experience. Um, yeah, this was a lot of years ago. It was an Easter Vigil liturgy. Um, I hope he's not listening to this. <laughs> I, I, it's a good story, though. Um, we There's the section of the exalted. We didn't have a deacon, and so the cantors were singing most of the exalted prayer. And then there's the portion that the priest sings. Our priest, he was, he was willing to sing, and he had a very pleasant voice, and he had its wireless microphone on, and it was pitched for or leveled for the spoken voice. Yes. And a normal spoken voice, not even the large projecting spoken voice. He was you know, a fairly soft-spoken guy. And so when he would try to sing, it would, I think the sound would kind of scare him. And mm. he got kind of quiet and he pulled back vocally. And the pitch was quite low and it never quite worked. That year, the night of the Easter Vigil, we were having huge sound problems. Mm. And we got to that point in the Exalted and realized that the mics were not on. And he realized that his microphone was not on. And there was this momentary pause. And, you know, instead of, you know, because you would usually sing at a third or a fourth lower than where the cantors had been, because that was comfortable for him and he didn't want to push too hard. And then all of a sudden, out of this silence, we hear unamplified from across the church, my dearest friends standing with me, right on the notated pitches. Mm -hmm. Clear as a bell absolutely holding the pitch, no breath sound, fully supported. He, it was this moment where he suddenly realized, oh, I have to do this, I guess. And he just did it without thinking. And it was perfect. Mm -hmm. And that, that was one of those moments. I was like, okay, he, he thought he couldn't sing. He was self-conscious about singing. He would kind of lay back and not want to be too loud and not want to get in the way. And in that moment, he stepped forward and he owned it. And it was, it was probably one of the most memorable Easter Vigil moments I've ever had, just to hear this clear as a bell voice that I had heard dozens of times before, but had never heard before at all like Isn't this. Isn't that wonderful? Microphones, for those of us who, who need to use them or are expected to use them, create problems just as all technology is creating problems now. So there, there are issues of, there are the Luddites who don't want anything to do with it at all, don't want to use microphone. And I do think there are times when you don't need to use the microphone and should be free to do that. There are other people who are, who are addicted to the microphone in the way people are addicted to cell phones. They love the microphone. They love what the microphone can do for their voice and the power of that amplification. And we have to be careful of that, the seductiveness of the microphone. I mean, that's part of the reason that it's so hard for singers to get off of the microphone when it's time for the assembly to sing. And it, that's just not, for priests, uh, it's also a problem. It's not just cantors. Priests often, and it's wonderful that they're singing and that they want to sing. I, I, that's exactly right. The goal, what happens when lectors and deacons and priests are coming in in procession during an opening song or hymn and none of them are singing? What is the message to the assembly? The message is, somebody else will do it, don't somebody worry about it. it. On the other hand, that a single amplified voice in that procession presents other problems. And sometimes you've got a war between two amplified voices. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, this is crazy, but many years ago, people were bandying about the idea of having mics hanging over the assembly to mic the assembly. It was part of this, it's like increasingly loud, loud, everything has to be louder and yeah. louder. And we have, the cantor's loud and the cantor's mic, so then we'll also mic the singing of the assembly. Isn't that... Isn't That's that interesting. Odd? Okay. And maybe also trying I can, to compensate yeah, I, I can see that like, there is a right reasoning in there somewhere, but I don't think that's... 
necessarily no, the way to do it. Exactly. But I mean, it, I mean, what I hear is like, oh, at least they, you know, in their mind was, we need to hear the voice of the assembly. Exactly. But yeah. yeah. But a funny, a like, funny yeah. way to do it. You know, yeah. we'll just give everyone a mic, give everyone a, a handheld or a portable mic, and then it will all work. But it's just sort of like, I don't know, escalation of unnecessary technology. Yeah. So sometimes the acoustics do require that you have a microphone, uh, you think about the number of people you have. Uh, sometimes what I want to do as a cantor, and actually have done as a cantor, if I feel a wall between myself and the assembly that I cannot break is to lit walk physically down to where they are without a mic and to sing with them. Mm. Just as you'll sometimes see priests do that with homilies. Yes. I have done that as, as the cantor when I feel that a connection is not being made for whatever reason. Fix it, physical proximity. Another teacher trick. You know, when you have a kid who's checked out or a kid who's misbehaving, you use physical proximity. So, yeah. So it's the same thing. Okay, I'll come to you. We're not connecting. I'll come down to you. And I think that's all right in, in service of this greater goal. Uh, in the liturgy, which is our prayer and uh, the active participation of everyone. And hopefully, again, we can make it become normative for people to sing. Um, it's not going to be in society, I don't think, anymore. I don't know if that'll come back, although things do come around again. I often think of uh, the community sings that they used to have during the Depression and World War II, and uh, what a marvelous thing that must have been. And perhaps if people were to experience something like that, too, that they could relate to, oh, just singing together with people is fun. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny. I, um, I had written, I had done some writing about, about cantoring some years ago, and I, I had put something in the book about, you know, it's like when you go to, the, go to a sporting event anymore, and the national anthem is sung by a soloist, and, you know, nobody really sings along. And, and I still mean to, I mean, I, I still get a little sad when that happens. Absolutely. But at the same time, I think after I wrote that, someone, you know, dropped me a note and said, yeah, but have you ever stayed till the seventh inning stretch? <laughs> and all of a sudden take me out to the ball game and there's one organ, Wrigley Field or wherever it is, and the, you know, the organ plays and nobody's, I think sometimes now they, ha they do have someone leading it, but they don't always. And the whole stadium, and if there is someone leading it, you probably can't hear him because the whole stadium is thundering away at take me out to the ball game. And I'm like, okay. It's shifted. It's still there. This sort of desire to mm -hmm. sing, there are still tiny seeds of it right. in our day-to-day -day life. Yeah. They're harder to find and they're not where they used to be, but they're, I think they're still there. Yeah, and I think it could come back. I hope it does. But certainly in our churches where we are attempting to connect with one another as well as with our God, it's terribly important to have that palpable presence of one another and one important way of doing that is through our voices. I really think that if people honestly, honestly believed that they were the body of Christ, that it would change the world. If, if people truly believed and embraced, I think that's an important goal, is for people to believe that they are the body of Christ. And uh, I think when we sing our prayer, we, we get glimpses of that. I sing with all my heart, my spirit leaps for joy. Who am I that you should honor me? By your saving grace, all will call me blessed and proclaim the greatness of your name. 
For more information, including details about the music you heard on today's podcast, please visit our website at singamen.giamusic.com. Sing Amen is produced and supported by GIA Publications.